Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID-19 crisis and beyond. Hi, I'm Dr. Risha Desai. Today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Angela Kirstenbrock, president of the Community College Baccalaureate Association. Angela holds a doctorate in higher education and public policy and a master's in nursing. She's been involved with workforce education programs and has developed nearly 30 degrees and certificate programs, including baccalaureate programs in nursing, health sciences, and information systems. In her current role, Angela is focused on leading the CCBA and its mission to help learners get prepared for family-sustaining careers. Thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for asking me. Well, I'd like to start with just kind of asking about how you're doing, how your family is doing during COVID. A lot of things are, are topsy-turvy, so I'd like to start there. Well, thank you for asking. I think we're doing pretty well. You know, it's been a while, so we've gotten used to all of this, and we're nearing the end. And also, we're in Florida, so the rules are a little bit different here. You know, we've got beautiful weather. You could be outside a lot. Restaurants are open, so we're all doing fine. We've been very lucky. A few of our family members have gotten COVID, but everybody's recovered fully. How about you and your family? Yeah, similar. So I'm in Oakland, California, and so it's been more locked down than it sounds like things are in Florida at the moment. And having said that, similarly, my, my own family is doing quite well. And I think right now that's the, the biggest blessing is just making sure we all get through this safely and you know safe and sound. So I appreciate you asking as well. You know, one thing that caught my eye, and, and I know you know this because I mentioned it just now, but is that phrase family sustaining careers. And, you know, we were just talking about one another's families. I, I'd love for you to reflect on on kind of how you think about that phrase and, and how that even became something that's so important to the CCBA, if we can start there. Sure. Well, I love that phrase. I actually think I made it up, but I didn't. But it was one of those things that you read and you you take it in. You know, you really embrace it. And that has really... I think, guided our work as a community college baccalaureate association. And I think as I work in higher education with any of the programs, because what you don't ever want to do is educate somebody so they can stay in poverty. And so you want to not give a hand, but you want to give a hand up. Let me help you to get on this path to middle class and upper middle class. So that's, you know, everything I think is in that phrase, it's living in a good neighborhood, it's, it's having access to good health care, it's having sidewalks so your children can walk and ride their bikes. So, so many things go into that. When I hear that phrase, it immediately conjures up people that are able to participate in the American dream. And so that's... It also feels like nowadays, everyone kind of recognizes that people have a family. I think there was a time maybe when you show up professionally and then there's your personal life. And now the two are blurred a lot more and people recognize that, you know, you're not just this person that shows up from maybe eight to five or nine to five, but that you have this other side of you, this family that you have yeah. to care for and think about as well. And, and that's just such an important change that I think this happened. Have you noticed that also? Well, I think as women, you know, we're always constantly thinking of that. So you're at work and you're juggling dentist appointments and soccer practice and all of those kinds of things. So I think we were always aware of that, but you tried to keep it, you know, a little bit on the low, particularly with your male colleagues. But now it's out there because, you know, my sons are taking care of families and driving kids places. And so are all of my colleagues. And I think it just gives a much more well-rounded, complete dimensional picture of what people deal with every day. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it, and it feels in some ways that we can all be a little bit more honest about ourselves. You know, we don't have mm-hmm. to, like you said, kind of, you had to keep it maybe on the DL and it doesn't always feel good, right? Like you're not a bad employee. You're just trying to be a good human being and you, and we all have responsibilities. So yeah, that's, that's a, a really great change, I think. And maybe on that front, I'd love to kind of hear maybe your own background. Like when you were growing up, you know, what, what initially got you even on this pathway to healthcare and, and thinking about this as a, as a potential profession for yourself? Oh, gosh, that's such a long, interesting story <laughs> to me only, probably. But so I grew up in inner city Boston. I grew up in an all 100% Italian neighborhood. You know, we were all immigrant kids. And, you know, your parents were pushing into you, you know, you're going to do better than me. You're going to do better. You're going to do better. And so, you know, that was something that we kind of internalized. And in high school, I loved the sciences. But, you know, I'm, I was a child of the 60s. And so when people were talking about, you know, women in the workforce, they were thinking, you know, education, healthcare, nursing, I don't know, maybe dental assisting or something. And so I chose nursing and I have never regretted that decision one day in my life. Maybe a couple of, after a couple of shifts, I might've, you know, really thought, what am I doing? But Overall, it's been a great career and it's really allowed me to do so many more things than I was initially thinking I was going to do when I was in college. So that's that. So I got my bachelor's and worked my way through school as a nursing assistant and home health aide. So I completely appreciate this latter approach that so many of the colleges are doing because that is what enabled me to, you know, go through school and then later got my master's, you know, while I was having children and then I taught. So I think this is sort of an interesting story, if, particularly if you're my age. We were, you know, that we were the age of sit-ins and peaceful sit-ins. And in uh, college, our dean was switching some things around that was going to require me to go to school during the summer. And I couldn't do that because I couldn't afford to pay for another semester without working. And so we held a peaceful protest in her office. Oh, wow. And she was so gracious about it. You know, she invited us in and we got to sit there for a couple of days, you know, leaving for wow. <laughs> leaving for meals because after all, we, you know, we had our priorities straight. But she invited us in so that we could watch what she was doing. And so she was dealing with, you know, budget and personnel and admissions and curriculum, all these things. You know, I left there thinking, this is what I want to do with my life. I, one day I want to be a dean of nursing. And so that got me on on this path and that happened for me. And I was really excited about it. I kept in contact with her for a while and she's since passed on, but that sit-in changed my life. You know, I don't know what I would have done otherwise, you know, certainly not higher ed because I never, ever considered it until that day. Just so I understand kind of the context, you went into protest, some sense of injustice, and then she invited you to watch her, and and then you said, actually, I, I, I kind of like your job, and, and maybe you can be my mentor. Is that accurate? Well, so there were several of us yeah. in her office. I mean, she had a nice big office, you know, so she invited us all in. She gave us Cokes, you know, she was bringing in snacks. I mean, she was Dean married to Paulus. She was just... I never met her. So she was a lovely, lovely woman. We left there, and one of my friends said to me, I am never going into higher ed. When she saw everything she had to deal with, and I had the opposite reaction, my reaction was, oh, this is great. This is so challenging and so fun. I want to do this. So 
I really am so curious. <laughs> in your in your career, have you ever had anyone protest your office or no. something? Okay. Because no. if, because if that were to happen, the the bar is high in terms of bar is high. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if they would have left unhappy, I would have been. I'm a failure. No. <laughs> Wow, that's a remarkable story and, and a very inspiring one because that person was a real a real mentor, a real leader for you. Without even knowing it. Yeah. You know, without just being gracious and open and listening. I mean, I, I just thought she was brilliant. So So tell me more about the CCBA then and, and kind of how do you guys work specifically with colleges and and with students, you know, you're a couple of degrees removed then from the student because you work with the colleges, the colleges work with the students. How does that relationship work? And, and what are the parts of that relationship that, that you enjoy the most? So I enjoy every bit of it. So I retired. That was 2018. I retired and, you know, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. And so this just fell in my lap. You know, it was, a, it was another one of those experiences where, you know, the universe is putting something in front of you. The last few years of my career at Seminole State College, I was writing baccalaureate degrees because they were workforce focused. So that was what we were doing. And I just saw the incredible impact that these degrees had on, on people. So the average age is like 31, 32. They're a student who's been, we'll say they were taking the scenic route to their bachelor's degree, right? You know, they were come in, come out, drop in, drop out, get a part-time job, get a full-time job, all those kinds of things, kids, car payments, all of those. And most of these students never thought, well, I'm going to go back and get my bachelor's degree. They really weren't thinking that. And so the baccalaureate gave them that opportunity. It, it gave them pause to think, well, maybe we could do this. And we worked a lot with industries saying, you know, all those folks that are working for you that have these associate's degree, wouldn't it be great if... And so that's essentially how I got my start doing this. And so right now there are 23 states in the U.S. that allow community colleges to offer some level of baccalaureate degrees. And then there are several others this legislative session that are considering this. So, you know, California, where you are, they allow pilot programs in, I think, 14 community colleges, but up for legislative vote. This session is whether or not California allows all the community colleges to be able to offer that. So we work with the chancellor's offices and we work with some schools. Arizona is doing something similar in that they're trying to get legislation to approve community colleges for the first time offering baccalaureate degrees in Arizona. And so we work with legislators, we work with colleges, we work with the community college associations, in different groups, helping to, you know, work on legislation that brings about a win-win for the universities. Because this isn't an us or they, you know, this isn't what that is. There are enough people in the United States who still need a baccalaureate degree that we don't have to have that discussion anymore, I think. And so we work on the wording and the rules for that. And then once colleges get the baccalaureate degree, then, okay, how do you develop a proposal? How do you work with your industry, make sure you use labor market data. You know, you don't want to start a baccalaureate degree. People get a bachelor's and then there's no jobs. So we're promising you finish this degree, there are going to be well-paying jobs for you. And if we promise that, then we need to make sure we do everything we can to keep that promise. So 
that's what we're all about. And so we do some consulting kinds of things. People call us on the phone, write us letters. We have a website that's a lot more active now than it used to be. We do some social media stuff. And then we have our conference, which starts next Tuesday at 12 o'clock, 12 noon Eastern time. So those are the kinds of things that we do when we're doing an inventory of every state, every college, every program that every college has and the best practices so that people don't have to reinvent the wheel, you know, just improve upon the wheel. So those are some of the things we do. I mean, that's a lot of work. And it's also such incredibly important timing, right? Because unemployment has obviously recently spiked. You've got a new administration in power in the U.S. And, and so I'm curious, like you have 23 states that have said, yes, we, we like this idea. 27 that are maybe not there yet. What is the main concern, if you could call it that, from the 27 states? Or what are the main concerns that, that you and your team kind of obviously with your experience can help navigate or often some insights into? Sure. Well, I think let's start, if you don't mind, we'll start with the driving factors. What pushes a state to do this? And I think, you know, a state like Wyoming, when they moved away from coal, you know, there were a lot of people who lost jobs, industries that closed, you know, not overnight, but we could use that term. And so the state of Wyoming is thinking, what are we going to do now? You know, what are our economic goals? How are we going to thrive as a state? And so one of the pieces to that is what kind of baccalaureates do we need? What kind of industries are we trying to recruit, you know, into our state or grow our own? What kind of people do we need? Where are they going to get the skills and education? So, you know, to approach it from an economic development standpoint, I think is really a really great position. So there's that. And then there's other states that are looking at their attainment rates and saying, gosh, we really need to work on these attainment rates where our income levels of this, you know, all of those things, you know, the percentage of black males that are getting a baccalaureate degree are really low. So how can we work on that? I think when we take the perspective of what is it that the state is trying to accomplish, what is a community trying to accomplish, then I think the community college baccalaureate is one strategy. So that doesn't dismiss at all what the universities are doing. It doesn't dismiss at all what vocational certificates do. This is just another pathway. And so that's the perspective that we take. Sometimes the universities are concerned, okay, duplication of degrees, you know, it's an enrollment game where they're all, everybody's hurting right now for enrollment. So we don't, so universities don't want to lose more enrollments. I think those kinds of things, you know, hey, this is our space. You stay in your space. We'll stay in our space. That kind of approach. You know, I tend to just say, no, I, I, I completely get all of these things. I mean, I understand them. I worked at a university. I understand. But how about if we do this? You know, nursing, they all have nursing programs. And most of them have RN to BSN programs. And so you would say, well, we already have these programs. Why do we need more? Well, you need more because you're not accepting the 3.2 student. You know, the student who has a 3.0 because they were also working in a family and all of these other reasons, you know. And so it's that student who's falling between the cracks. And so I think that that's a legitimate reason to have these baccalaureate degrees. So that's typically it. And we try to have win-win. I had a president, Ann McGee, and she, every time we were going to do something controversial, she would hold us up and say, well, what's the win-win for the other, the other group? Now, that would take us, you know, a long time to try to figure out that win-win, but I thought it was such a great practice. 
And so for universities, it's, well, let's develop a seamless baccalaureate to master's program. Let's do cohort programs. Our faculty need doctorates. You know, we can have joint faculty share positions. So there's all kinds of ways that that you can have a win-win for students. Because a student who says, I was never going to the university, they may be the same student in three years that says, I bet I can get my master's. And now that I've done this, my children are going to do this. Right? So it's a long game. I know it's a long game, but our industries have to help support this. Our universities have to be brave and allow community colleges to do this. And we we just need to work in partnerships with those goals of family sustaining wages, economic development, you know, health for everybody. Have you on this journey found interesting, maybe surprising bedfellows, like, like, like other groups that you would have never thought you'd be working side by side with, but have kind of the same goal at the end of the day? And, and as a result, you're both trying to get this through? Like, has that happened where you've had interesting partners? So only over the past two years have we been looking for partners. And there's so many of them, you know, and everything always comes from a place of need. So labor data, really, you need good, strong third-party labor data to prove your point, prove your case. And so MZ, we work with an economic modeling company, MZ. They're a sponsor of ours. And so they help schools prove the case. You know, recruiting adult students, that's a completely different game. Yeah. You know, you're not having a pizza night at the high school. That's not going to work, right? And so we have to look for organizations that really understand adult learners. Interact is one of those companies. Western Governors, you know, you would think Western Governors and CCBA would be competitive, but we're not because we both understand that we need to have multiple pathways to the baccalaureate degree and advanced degrees. And so we work we work together. I think everybody who's a partner for us, NISOD, which is a national instructional Oh, Ed Leach, I'm so sorry. But anyway, they're the group that does staff development, staff and faculty development. So, you know, with them, it's how do you get your faculty and your staff ready for this next level of teaching and offering baccalaureate degrees on your campus? So they have a role to play in that. So I think there are so many people that are partners with us because I think we all see what we need. And I think COVID has brought home this need so much more than pre-COVID. So, you know, I read Michael Hyatt a lot, you know, I'm a full focus planner junkie. (laughs) And, you know, he says, you know, when things go bad, well, what does this make possible? And it took me a while to get to, well, what does this make possible? But it makes possible partnerships that we hadn't had before because it, it forces you to call people on the phone and have conversations with them and, you know, everybody trying to do the right thing. So that makes a lot of sense. And, and and it makes me realize that there's probably so many misconceptions and misunderstandings in this space that obviously with 23 state partners that you've gotten across the line, you've been able to clear up. Do you mind sharing with me, like, what are some of the common things you hear about this movement or about this idea that is just not true, or is just not quite true that maybe our listeners can get corrected? Yeah. Okay. So many. So one thing, people don't need baccalaureates. You know, they should just focus on the basics. You know, we heard that in one of a a Facebook posts this week. Well, 
okay, people don't need baccalaureates, but let's take a look at the Great Recession in 2008. The people who lost their jobs were those people who didn't have baccalaureate degrees. Let's look at our work from home economy now. Who are not employed? People who didn't have baccalaureates couldn't work from a computer at home. So, you know, this idea that you don't need a baccalaureate degree, I love that when people say that it's always about somebody else doesn't need a baccalaureate yeah. degree. Their kids need one. <laughs> they have one, but maybe somebody else doesn't. So I get a little, like my Italian comes out a little <laughs> bit on that one, you know. I ran apprenticeship programs for, you know, 15 years. I completely value plumbing, electrical, sheet metal, all of those completely. But if somebody wants to own their own company, which I really want them to do, I want somebody to start their own company. Now, wouldn't it make sense that they have a bachelor's degree in business so that they know how to do that? To me, it makes sense. We're not saying everybody has to have a baccalaureate degree. What we're saying is everybody should have the opportunity to do that. So I think that is one misconception. Another is, well, the community colleges, this is mission creep. You know, they're getting out of their lane. Well, if community colleges, which I believe, and many people believe, we're about workforce. We're the workforce engine for a community. Well, then these baccalaureates and every one of them are workforce focused, high skill, high need, typically high demand, high salary, maybe with the exception of early childhood. Those are workforce degrees. And so the community colleges should be responding and they are responding to their community's needs. Who knows better what that community needs than you know, the Economic Development Council in conjunction with the community colleges in the industry? So I think that's another misconception. Another is, well, the community colleges aren't capable of offering baccalaureate degrees. You know, I think that that is, I don't know. I'm not even sure where that comes from. When I was, you know, a dean, I had so many of my faculty who full-time faculty at the community college also teaching part-time at the university. So how can you say that they're not qualified? And the accreditation rigor that you go through for nursing, respiratory care, PTA, dental hygiene, those are incredibly rigorous processes. So yes, I think that they're completely capable, but that is something that the college has to assess. Are we capable? Do we have the bandwidth? Do we have the resources to do that? And that's something that a college has to think about, you know, definitely well before they start this process so they can get ready. That one is another one that just like, I think, you know, one of the most challenging people to teach is somebody who, you know, has three kids at home, they're working a full-time job, you know, they don't have all the resources, you know, their parents didn't go to college. Those are more challenging people to teach because I think that, I mean, you've got to really tap into the motivation and you have to do it in a very relevant way. They are absolutely, I've never seen where one of these adults is looking for, just give me an A. You know, that is not what they're about because on Monday morning, they have to show up at that job with those skills, right? And so I see them as being so much more motivated than maybe the 18, 19-year-old who's not really sure what they're going to be doing yet, you know? Yeah. Hitting all my passions. <laughs> no, I, I can see that. And I, and I definitely appreciate the fact that your passion is coming through because especially with adult learners, I think that the moment something is not relevant, they recognize that the time spent could be time spent with their child or with their significant yeah. other or with their parent. And that oftentimes is not as true for a younger learner. 
that's a very direct kind of realistic thing. Like if I'm not learning, you're not just not preparing me, but I literally just lost an hour with my kid. And that trade-off just wasn't worth it. So you got to be able to step up your, your learning game. So I think your points are really well taken. Then maybe as a final point, you've had such a cool career. And I love the anecdote you shared about how you kind of got spurred on into this field. What would you suggest that students out there that may be listening, folks early in their, in their professions may, may want to do to explore you know, what, what kind of opportunities might be out there for them, including attending a, a sit-in? Going to sit in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think, you know, students today have so many more advantages. You know, the internet opens up the world. And so, you know, I know, you know, listening to podcasts and being exposed to other ideas, other career fields, you know, I heard something. We were at a conference in Greece a few years back, and the Minister of Education said, you know, when I graduated, my job was to look for a job. Now, when you graduate, students, because there was a protest at that conference, when you graduate, you need to invent a job. And so I would say continue looking, do things the way you want to do them, you know, manage your life the way you want to manage your life. But there's so much knowledge out there. You've got to be willing to learn something new every single day to keep learning. You know, I'm old school, so I'm going to say get your master's, get a doctorate, you know contribute back to society. But the biggest thing is to continue learning and don't be afraid of failure. If you don't fail, it means you just tried to do something easy and that is not going to serve you. So I don't know. Is that is that a good enough answer? That's a lovely answer. You know, when you said you're old school, I thought you were going to say be better than your parents because you had mentioned that your parents said that to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I, I think that your advice is spot on. That's easy for them, right? <laughs> That's easy. Yeah, exactly. Be better than the generation that preceded you. No, I think that's a really interesting point about, you know, there was a time when you would kind of be assigned a job. And nowadays, people talk about figuring out what your job is going to be based on the problems that you see in the world. And that's, that's a wonderful point. So thank you for making it. It's that intersection between a problem that you see in the world and your passion. And if you can intersect those and live in that space, I mean, you know, that's a great life. It is. And sometimes that space moves and shifts. And so just making sure that you're adaptable and able to kind of move and shift with it is key. And sometimes that means going back and getting more education, like you said, as an adult Absolutely. learner to, to kind yeah. of reskill and retool because that mantra of like lifelong learning, it's, it's so true today in a way that it just wasn't as true, I feel, you know, a generation or two ago. I'm a nurse. You know, you've got to keep up your license. We only have a requirement of 24 contact hours but, you know, 18 months ago, we weren't thinking about COVID. Look how much we've, we've learned just in this span about COVID and, and delivering care to folks. So, Well, thank you very much for joining us today. That was a delightful insight into your life and your perspective. I, I appreciate you sharing that with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate that. I'm Dr. Risha Desai. Thanks for checking out today's show. Remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line. We're all in this together. For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org slash raise the line podcast.